Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we're breaking up with our old patterns and making room for something new as we change harmful into helpful habits. You know we all have those little things we still hold on to, justifying that one day soon we'll change our old ways and do better. You name it and we've justified it at one time or another. These might be habits we learned at an early age or ones we've adopted recently to cope with a trying time in our lives. Nevertheless, they have to go. We are on a quest for a new, healthy, and a sustainable life full of joy. Old and harmful habits don't have a place in our new normal. You might be carrying something around that you didn't even know was harmful. Maybe it's not as tangible as overeating and drinking, but more personal and internal. Either way, it's not serving you in a positive way, so guess what? It's gotta go. Grab those pruning shears and let's get to work cutting out the dead weight that's preventing you from thriving. Routines are great, aren't they? Patterns we have in our life which require little thought. Autopilot, if you will. Sometimes they protect us from the more mundane aspects of our life. The drive you've made to work thousands of times. The laundry that piles up every week without fail. Cashing your check and paying your bills. Cashing your check and paying your bills. Mowing the lawn. Taking out the trash over and over and over. But routines can also protect bad habits that can go unaddressed for decades. The morning cigarette with coffee. The beer to unwind. The slice of pie that perks up a bad mood. The negative self-talk that keeps us from feeling confident. The gossip that makes us feel part of a crowd. When is the last time you examined your daily routines and rituals? When is the last time you challenged your thinking? When is the last time you adopted something new? Let's take a personal inventory to see where we spend our time, what feels good and provides great benefits, and what might be holding us back. Let's be careful with the feels good part of this inventory. Not everything that feels good is actually good for us. We need to evaluate the short and long-term effects and benefits of these routines and rituals. James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits, helps us with the Habits Guide, How to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. Habits are the small decisions you make and actions you perform every day. According to researchers at Duke University, habits account for about 40% of our behaviors on any given day. Your life today is essentially the sum of your habits. How in shape or out of shape you are, results of your habits. How happy or unhappy you are, a result of your habits. How successful or unsuccessful you are, a result of your habits. What you do repeatedly, which is what you spend time thinking about and doing each day, ultimately forms the person you are, the things you believe, 
and the personality that you portray. All habits proceed through four stages in the same order. Cue, craving, response, and reward. This four-step pattern is the backbone of every habit, and your brain runs through these steps in the same order each time. First, there is the cue. The cue triggers your brain to initiate a behavior. It's a bit of information that predicts a reward. Our prehistoric ancestors were paying attention to cues that signaled the location of primary rewards like food, water, and sex. Today, we spend most of our time learning cues that predict secondary rewards like money and fame, power and status, praise and approval, love and friendship, or a sense of personal satisfaction. Of course, these pursuits also indirectly improve our odds of survival and reproduction, which is the deeper motive behind everything we do. Your mind is continuously analyzing your internal and external environment for hints of where rewards are located. Because the cue is the first indication that we're close to a reward, it naturally leads to a craving. Cravings are the second step of the habit loop, and they are the motivational force behind every habit. Without some level of motivation or desire, without craving a change, we have no reason to act. What you crave is not the habit itself, but the change in state it delivers. You don't crave smoking a cigarette. You crave the feeling of relief it provides. You're not motivated by brushing your teeth, but rather by the feeling of a clean mouth. You don't want to turn on the television. You want to be entertained. Every craving is linked to a desire to change your internal state. Cravings differ from person to person. In theory, any piece of information could trigger a craving, but in practice, people are not motivated by the same cues. For a gambler, the sound of a slot machine can be a potential trigger that sparks an intense wave of desire. For someone who rarely gambles, the jingles and the chimes of the casino are just background noise. Cues are meaningless until they're interpreted. The thoughts, feelings, and emotions of the observer are what transforms a cue into a craving. The third step is the response. The response is the actual habit you perform, which can take the form of a thought or an action. Whether a response occurs depends on how motivated you are and how much friction is associated with the behavior. If a particular action requires more physical or mental effort than you're willing to expend, then you won't do it. Your response also depends on your ability. It might sound simple, but a habit can occur only if you're capable of doing it. If you want to dunk a basketball but you can't jump high enough to do so, well, you're out of luck. Finally, the response delivers a reward. Rewards are the end goal of every habit. The cue is about noticing the reward. The craving is about wanting the reward. The response is about obtaining the reward. We chase rewards because they serve two purposes. Number one, they satisfy us. And number two, 
They teach us. The first purpose of rewards is to satisfy your craving. Yes, rewards provide benefits on their own. Food and water deliver the energy you need to survive. Getting a promotion brings more money and respect. Getting in shape improves your health and your dating prospects. But the more immediate benefit is that rewards satisfy your craving to eat or to gain status or to win approval. At least for a moment, rewards deliver contentment and the relief from craving. Second, rewards teach us which actions are worth remembering in the future. Your brain is a reward detector. As you go about your life, your sensory nervous system is continuously monitoring which actions satisfy your desires and deliver pleasure. Feelings of pleasure and disappointment are part of the feedback mechanism that helps your brain distinguish useful actions from useless ones. Rewards close the feedback loop and complete the habit cycle. If behavior is insufficient in any of the four stages, it will not become a habit. Eliminate the cue and your habit will never start. Reduce the craving and you won't experience enough motivation to act. Make the behavior difficult and you won't be able to do it. And if the reward fails to satisfy your desire, then you'll have no reason to do it again in the future. Without the first three steps, a behavior will not occur. Without all four, a behavior will not be repeated. The cue triggers a craving, which motivates a response, which provides a reward, which satisfies the craving, and ultimately becomes associated with the cue. Together, these four steps form a neurological feedback loop. Cue, craving, response, reward. Cue, craving, response, reward. That ultimately allows you to create automatic habits. We can split these four steps into two phases, the problem phase and the solution phase. The problem phase includes the cue and the craving, and it's when you realize that something needs to change. The solution phase includes the response and the reward. And it's when you take action and achieve the change you desire. All behavior is driven by the desire to solve a problem. Sometimes the problem is that you notice something good and you want to obtain it. Sometimes the problem is that you're experiencing pain and you want to relieve it. Either way, the purpose of every habit is to solve the problem you face. So let's cover a few examples of what this really looks like in real life. Q. Your phone buzzes with a new text message. Craving. You want to learn the contents of that message. Solution. You grab your phone and you read the text. Reward. You satisfy your craving to read the message. Grabbing your phone becomes associated with your phone buzzing. Q. You're answering emails. Craving. You begin to feel stressed and overwhelmed by work. You want to feel in control. Solution, you bite your nails. Reward, you satisfied your craving to reduce stress. Biting your nails becomes associated with answering email. Q, you wake up. Craving, you want to feel alert. Solution, you drink a cup of coffee. Reward, 
you satisfied your craving to feel alert. Drinking coffee becomes associated with waking up. Q. You smell a donut shop as you walk down the street near your office. Craving. You begin to crave a donut. Solution. You buy a donut and eat it. Reward. You satisfy your craving to eat a donut. Buying a donut becomes associated with walking down the street near your office. Q. You hit a stumbling block on a project at work. Craving. You feel stuck and want to relieve your frustration. Solution. You pull out your phone and check social media. Reward. You satisfy your craving to feel relieved. Checking social media becomes associated with feeling stuck at work. This four-step process is not something that happens occasionally, but rather it's an endless feedback loop that's running and active during every moment you're alive, even now. The brain is continually scanning the environment, predicting what will happen next, trying out different responses, and learning from the results. The entire process is completed in a split second, and we use it again and again without realizing everything that has just been packed into the previous moment. Imagine walking in a dark room and flipping on the light switch. You've performed this simple habit so many times that it occurs without thinking. You proceed through all four stages in a fraction of a second. The urge to act strikes you without even knowing it. Q. You walk into a dark room. Craving. You want to be able to see. Solution. You flip on the light switch. Reward. You satisfy your craving to see. Turning on the light switch becomes associated with a dark room. By the time we become adults, we rarely notice the habits that are running our lives. Most of us never give a second thought to the fact that we tie the same shoe first every morning or unplug the toaster after each use or always change into comfortable clothes after getting home from work. After decades of mental programming, we automatically slip into these patterns of thinking and acting. We can transform these four steps into a practical framework that can be used to design good habits and eliminate bad. The Four Laws of Behavior Change provides a simple set of rules for creating good habits and breaking bad ones. You think of each law as a lever that influences human behavior. When the levers are in the right positions, creating good habits is effortless. When they're in the wrong positions, it's nearly impossible. So how can we create a good habit? Well, the first law, Q, make it obvious. The second law, craving, make it attractive. The third law, response, make it easy. And the fourth law, reward, make it satisfying. We can also invert these laws to learn how to break a bad habit. So, inversion of the first law, Q, make it invisible. Inversion of the second law, craving, make it unattractive. Inversion of the third law, response, make it difficult. And inversion of the fourth law, reward, make it unsatisfying. Whenever you want to change your behavior, you can simply ask yourself, how can I make it obvious? How can I make it attractive? How can I make it easy? And how can I make it 
satisfying. If you've ever wondered, why don't I do what I say I'm going to do? Why don't I lose weight or stop smoking or save for retirement or start that side business? Why do I always say something is important but never seem to make time for it? The answers to those questions can be found somewhere in these four laws. The key to creating good habits and breaking bad ones is to understand these fundamental laws and how to alter them to your specifications. Every goal is doomed to fail if it goes against the grain of human nature. Ooh, good stuff. I have a juxtaposition I struggle with that might be familiar to you. I have a super strong willpower, but I can also justify anything. This is a serious power struggle. It usually means that when I'm ready, I'm all in. But until that time, I can go around and around with myself. Negotiations, bargaining, deals, apologies, shaming, new deal, new rules, lots of blurry lines. I'm sure I don't need to go on and on, but I could. The biggest gray area for me is moderation. This concept doesn't make sense to me, and it's when my negotiator kicks in. I love the old, I'll work out so I can eat whatever I want. (laughs) This is one of the biggest lies I've ever told myself. I can't possibly work out to the degree I like to eat. But back to moderation and my lack of it. I read an article in the waiting room of a doctor's office that had a measurable impact on my life. The article was about abstinence versus moderation. It caught my eye immediately and gave me a title for the feeling that I was having. Why was it easier for me to quit something versus moderate it? I've talked to people who say, I could never stop, but I could cut down, which seems so much harder to me, but I didn't know why. My mind doesn't wrestle with the words no or none. But yes, and a little, sends it spinning. I want to see how it sits with you. Because if you're like me, abstinence is really a freeing concept. Shana Leibowitz spotlights a habit expert who says people come in four types. And figuring out yours is the first step to being happier. When you start asking questions about the best strategies for self-improvement, there's one frustrating sentence you'll hear over and over again. It depends. It can sound like a cop-out, but in reality, no blanket technique will help everyone lose weight, start exercising, be more productive, or spend more time with their family. It depends. On things like your personality, upbringing, and biological predispositions. Few people know that better than Gretchen Rubin, the best-selling author of multiple books on happiness and habits, including most recently, The Four Tendencies. But, and this is a big but, Rubin has taken It Depends one step further by giving people specific strategies that she says will work for them based on their personality type. She calls it The Four Tendencies Framework. Rubin says pretty much everyone falls into one of four categories. 
There's a quiz on her website that can help you figure out which one applies to you. But Ruben says most people can tell which type they are just by hearing the brief description of each one. The four tendencies are based largely on how you respond to outer and inner expectations. And here's how it works. Upholders generally meet both inner and outer expectations, meaning they don't let others or themselves down. Ruben says she's an upholder. For example, she wakes up every day at 6 a.m. and likes to work in the same places around her neighborhood. Upholders usually have an easier time forming habits than other people do, but they can still struggle. Questioners meet only inner expectations. They push back against and question all expectations. Above all, they do something only if they think it makes sense. They hate anything arbitrary. As Ruben writes in Better Than Before, questioners resist rules for rules' sake. Questioners often remark, I can keep a resolution if I think it's important, but I wouldn't make a New Year's resolution because January 1st is a meaningless date. Obligers meet outer expectations, but not always inner ones. In other words, they usually need some form of external accountability. Maybe that means taking a class with mandatory homework assignments or joining a sports team with regular practice sessions. Rebels resist both inner and outer expectations. They value authenticity and self-determination. Ruben says that if you ask a rebel to do something, they will likely resist, which can be frustrating for the people asking. Knowing your own and other people's tendencies can make life easier. Ruben has found that most people fall into the obliger category. Rebels tend to be the smallest group. Once you've figured out which tendency best describes you, you can pinpoint habit-forming strategies that will work for you. For example, an obliger might want to find a workout buddy who meets him at the gym every morning. The prospect of disappointing the buddy might be enough motivation to work out. Knowing someone else's tendency is equally useful because you can frame that habit you want them to start in a way that's compelling to them. If you're trying to change a habit like you're trying to exercise more or you're trying to get someone else to do something like turn in a report on time, it's really helpful to know their tendencies because then you know what buttons to push. I think I'm an upholder, but need to be an obliger to make something stick. <laughs> I'm a creature of habit to some degree, but I like a plan. I like to make a plan and I get somewhat anxious if there is no plan. I used to think I was a fly by the seat of my pants kind of girl, you know, spontaneous and laid back. Nope. In all honesty, that might be the furthest thing from the truth. Routines give me that sense of plan. I've worked from home for over a decade, and the only way that works is by following a routine and forming good habits. This makes me happy to accomplish something that I set for myself. Let's learn a little bit more about happiness and habits from Gretchen Rubin. I'm Gretchen Rubin, and I study happiness and habits, the little things people can do as part of their everyday life in order to be happier. I mean, we all know that 
that health is, is so important to happiness. But health is kind of like money. It's, we feel the lack of it much more than we feel the benefit of it. So once you feel pretty good or once you have enough money, you don't realize how much it contributes to your happiness. It's when you are in pain or are sick or don't have enough money that you're very aware of the, ver the important role that they play in your life. So health is important because it gives us that feeling also of vitality. And, and a sense of energy is tied with happiness because a lot of times there are things that we know that if we did them, we would be happier, but we just feel too drained or too exhausted to attempt them. So you know you'd be happier if you planned a big birthday party for your sister, but you just can't face it. Or you know you should exercise regularly, but you just kind of can't get yourself organized enough to do it because you just feel so overwhelmed by life. So a sense of energy and health and vitality um, they make us feel happier and they also empower us to do other things that are also very important to building happiness. One thing I've learned from my subject, my, my study of habits, is that there is this very large group of people who, in my framework, I call obligers, who have a hard time meeting their, the expectations they set for themselves, but they're great at meeting expectations that other people set for them. And so they need health trainers, coaches, um, anybody who's going to help them hold themselves accountable. So I heard from a woman who said, I was reading about your framework. I realized I'm an obliger. For years, I've been trying to exercise on my own. I kept thinking, why am I not able to make myself a priority? Other people seem to be able to do it. But now I work out with a trainer three days a week at 6.30 in the morning, and it's no problem for me because I know I have to meet that other person. So a health coach is someone who can get you to change those eating habits that you've been trying to do for years or help you to stick to that exercise or help help you to go to sleep on time, all these things that it's not that you don't know them, but for a lot of people, it's very hard to put them into practice. And having somebody who, and also a friend of mine who's, who is a health coach, um, he talks about pro or peer. And he says, you know, a lot of times people don't listen to their peers. They need a pro. And I said, well, is it important that you pay the person? And he said, it is sometimes we value things more when we pay for them. And a lot of times it's a feeling that it's somebody who's objective, somebody who's thought a lot about this, brings a lot to it, and also someone who's not, who's not necessarily your family member or your friend, somebody who's gonna cut you slack, somebody who's gonna say, come on, you committed to this, it's time for you to come through. So they, bring, they, they put you in a different kind of frame of mind. One of the things I often write about is the difference between abstainers and moderators. So abstainers are people that when they have a temptation, they do better when they abstain totally. And moderators do better when they have something sometimes, or a little bit, or a few bites. So like, you know, can they keep a, a bar of chocolate in their desk for a week, or do they eat it all in one day? That's an abstainer versus a moderator. So I wrote about this, and a woman wrote to me, and she said, I'd always tried to be a moderator because that sounds more sensible, but I realized I'm actually an abstainer, which is what I am, I'm an abstainer. And she said, I've lost 70 pounds because I gave up flour and sugar, and it's not even hard for me. And I thought, it just shows how, if someone just tells you something about yourself or shows, shines a new light on something about your experience, sometimes you're able to do this huge change really surprisingly effortlessly, but you kind of need to get that key to be able to understand yourself and your circumstances in a way that you can make the choices that are best for you. The more I look at happiness, the more I see, you know, that your, your physical experience colors your emotional experience, your emotional experience colors your physical, physical experience. All these things are bound together. And also the thing about the body is that sometimes we focus on trying to change our thoughts and our minds. It's hard to change our thoughts. It's much easier to change our outward actions. And so sometimes by focusing on outward actions and the things that you can control, you can't control your boss, but you can control whether you go to bed on time. Um, you can, you can, 
do things that will have um, a much larger effect um, on things that perhaps aren't as tangible or aren't as clearly within your control. So I think dealing with the things, your own physical habits, your own health habits, is a great place to start um, because it is gonna have huge consequences and it is something that is within our power, large, to some degree, not totally, but to some degree. You know, we've talked recently about decluttering the mind, and James Clear explains that idea when it comes to habits. How to declutter your mind and unleash your willpower by using bright lines rules. Hmm, pretty interesting. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say or do can be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed to you. Do you understand these rights as they have been read to you? You're right. This is the Miranda warning. In the spring of 1966, a man named Ernesto Miranda was arrested in Phoenix. The police had very little to go on, but they suspected Miranda of kidnapping and raping an 18-year-old woman 10 days earlier. The officers interrogated Miranda for two hours and were rewarded for their effort. Miranda admitted to the rape charge and signed a confession paper. There was just one problem. During the interrogation, Miranda had been alone, and at no point was he informed that he had the right to legal counsel. When the case went to trial, Miranda's written confession was used as evidence. He was quickly convicted, but his lawyer appealed because Miranda had never been informed of his rights, and thus, according to his lawyer, the confession was non-voluntary. The Arizona Supreme Court upheld the decision, but eventually the case made it to United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court overturned the Miranda ruling by a vote of five to four because the person in custody must, prior to interrogation, be clearly informed that they have the right to remain silent and that anything they say will be used against them in court. They must be clearly informed that this is a right to consult a lawyer and to have a lawyer with them during interrogation, and that if they don't have a means to a lawyer, one will be appointed to represent them. The Supreme Court had just created a bright line rule. A bright line rule refers to a clearly defined rule or standard. It's a rule with clear interpretation and very little wiggle room. It establishes a bright line between what the rule is saying and what it's not saying. The Miranda ruling is one example. If a police officer fails to inform a defendant in the custody of their rights, then the suspect's statements are not admissible in court. Plain and simple, clear and bright. Most of us could benefit from setting brighter lines in our personal and professional lives. Consider some common examples. We might say, we want to check our email less frequently. We might say, we want to drink more moderately. We might say, we want to save more for retirement. We might say, we want to eat healthier. But what do these statements really mean? What does it mean to check email less frequently? Are you going to try to do better about it and hope that works out? Will you set specific days or certain times when you will be unavailable? Will you check email on the weekends? Will you process email only on your computer? 
what exactly is moderate drinking? Is it one drink per week? Five? Ten? We haven't defined it, so how will we know if we're making progress? What does it mean to save more? More is not a number. How much is more? When will you save? Every month? Every paycheck? What does eating healthier look like on a daily basis? Does that mean you eat more servings of vegetables? If so, how many? Do you want to start by eating a healthy meal once per day, twice, every meal? It can be easy to make promises like this to yourself, but they don't create bright lines. Fuzzy statements make progress hard to measure, and the things we measure are the things we improve. Now, do we need to measure every area of our lives? Of course not. But if something is important to you, then you should establish a bright line for it. Consider these alternatives. I will only check email between 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. I will enjoy a maximum of two drinks per night. I will save $500 per month for my retirement. I will eat at least two types of vegetables per day. These statements establish bright lines. These statements make action steps precise and obvious. Vague promises will never lead to clear results. Near Isle proposes a similar strategy that he calls progressive extremism. To explain the concept, Near uses the example of being a vegetarian. If you were interested in becoming a vegetarian, you might start by saying, I don't eat red meat. The goal is not to change everything at once, but to take a very clear and extreme stand in one small area. You're establishing a bright line on that topic. Over time, you can progressively move your bright line forward and add other behaviors in the mix, like I don't eat red meat or fish, and so on. Establishing bright lines in your life can provide a huge boost in willpower. Here's why. First, bright lines shift the conversation in your head from one of sacrifice to one of empowerment. When you don't have a bright line established and you choose not to do something, the tendency is to say, oh, I can't do it this time. But when you do have a bright line clearly set, your response can simply be, no thanks, I don't do that. Bright lines help you to avoid making just this once exceptions. Instead, you're following a new identity that you've created for yourself. Second, by establishing clear decisions in your life, you can conserve willpower for other important choices. Here's the problem with trying to make daily decisions in muddy water. Without bright lines, you must decide whether a situation fits your standards every time. With bright lines, the decision is made ahead of time. Because of this, you're less likely to suffer from decision fatigue and more likely to have willpower left over for work, relationships, and other healthy habits. Let's hear a little bit more from Near Isle on habits or routines. Um, a daily habit that is not negotiable. I mean, I, I think that... Um, so... I, the reason I'm hesitating is that uh, I think there's a difference between habits and routines. Okay. And uh, I think when most people say habits, they, or the reason we want 
to build a habit. I think there's a little bit, I think we're in a little bit of a habit bubble, to be honest. So I don't, I'm not trying to avoid the question, but I just want to clarify because words really matter to me. Yeah. When most people say they want a habit, what they really say is, I want something that's hard to do and I don't want to put in the hard work. I want a writing habit. I want an exercise habit. Uh, but then when they do those things and they figure out they're, they're hard, they get, uh, they get down on themselves. Wait a minute, this was supposed to be easy. Habits are supposed to be effortless. So it's important to make sure we understand what a habit is. The definition of a habit is an impulse to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. Unlike a habit, a routine is simply a behavior frequently repeated. Big difference. Yeah. So I have certain routines that are very important to me, right? Like exercise, getting good sleep. Uh, you know, these, that's what a big part of time boxing is about is making sure you have time for those routines. But the expectation that things should be habits is very dangerous. For example, with a writing habit. I don't know how to write with little or no conscious thought. I mean, I'd write gobbledygook. I have to think. It's hard work. When I go to the gym, if it's effortless, uh, I'm not really pushing myself. Now, I would say, okay, so a running habit, when I run, I can zone out. It is effortless. I've gotten to a point in my physical fitness where I can run free. I'm not like timing myself. I'm not pushing myself to get better. I just want to enjoy with little or no conscious thought. That I could say is a habit. Hmm. But when I push myself, it's no longer a habit, right? Because I'm working hard. So by definition, it's not something done with little or no conscious thought. So I think it's important that a lot of people uh, get tripped up around this. They, they think, okay, I'm gonna start this or that habit without realizing that every habit starts as a routine, but not every routine can become a habit. Many things will never ever become a habit. And that's okay. We should just know to expect that certain behaviors by definition will never become effortless, will always require hard work. That's yeah. just part of the, the process. No, and I appreciate you clarifying that as well. And so your non-negotiable routines are you, you're active every day. Mm -hmm. Your sleep is really important to mm -hmm. you. I mean, there's certain things. Writing time. So writing I have, time. I have time in my calendar. So when I travel, you, you mentioned travel. You know, context changes our behavior. So I plan ahead for this. I know that when I travel, like you know, we're, we're, I, I'm uh, promoting the book right now. So my schedule is is determined by my publicist right now. Right. Uh, so of course, I have to give up on certain routines while I'm away from my home base. Uh, but when I'm at home, I'm I'm very uh, strict about my calendar. Now that doesn't mean I sometimes don't get distracted. Right, the definition of becoming indistractable doesn't mean you never get distracted. It means you don't keep getting distracted by the same things again and again. You're the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do. Right. So there's this quote that uh, says that um, uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting different results. So I used to do the same, I used to get distracted the same way all the time, right? So the point of becoming indistractable is that you can look at that distraction and say, okay, where, why did I go off track? There's only three reasons, external trigger, internal trigger, or a pro planning problem. And you stop getting distracted by the same things like a dummy. I used to you know, constantly get distracted by the same things. Now I do something about it, right? So when I have that time box calendar, when I have my routines that you know, like writing, like exercise, like quality sleep, uh, if I do fall off track, now I know why and I can fix it the next time. Nir, you totally called me out. I felt exposed when you said, you want something hard to do, but you don't want to put in the hard work. Ouch. He's right. I identify with this when it comes to working out. I want the end result, but I can't seem to find the willpower, the routine, or adopt a habit that sticks. Does anyone else struggle with this? Why can't I just do something every day? I love to read in the morning with my tea. Habit? Check. 
I love to crochet while watching a binge-worthy series. Habit? Check. Maybe I need to explore these things to find what satisfaction I experience so that I can look to incorporate that same feeling into exercise of some sort. I don't know. Sounds like a good place to start. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you. Conduct a personal inventory to identify those routines and rituals that are holding you hostage. Develop their replacement by understanding what new helpful habits you need to adopt. Break them to make them. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. I stumbled through until the path was clear.